Welcome back. So this is episode 16 that you're about to listen to. Uh, in this episode, I am alone this time. Uh, no guests. I am discussing Spencer Fisher's, the recent article about Spencer Fisher on MMA fighting, which is very, very interesting. You'll hear my take on that. Uh, also, a little bit of um, USADA news. They have changed the rules around marijuana and in-fight and out-fight competition tests and things like that. We also preview UFC on ABC, uh, which has Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater in the main event. And there is also just a tiny little thought on the current meeting that's going on between Dana White and Khabib Nurmagomedov. Enjoy, my friends. So, uh, on episode 15, I had Tom Green, a uh, Bellator fighter on, who's a good friend of mine. Um, I hope you all enjoyed that episode. Um, we did have some sound problems, though, um, and that's mainly because uh, we had a phone too close to the microphone. So, apologies for the um, for the quality of that um, error my bad. Um, but we will do another one uh, when he comes back on and hopefully we won't have that problem again. So apologies about that. But I do hope you enjoyed the episode. It was our highest listened to episode so far, which is fantastic. Um, probably nothing to do with Tom, you know, probably all just to do with me and how cool and awesome I am. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll never know. I guess we'll never know. But yeah, apologies for the sound issues. Um, and we will make another one and we will make it better. Uh, so, yeah, apologies. An article came out recently. I think it was by MMA Fighting. Let me make sure I get this right because I don't. I want to credit the person that did it. Um, Stephen Morocco or Mar Marocco um, of MMAfighting.com released uh, or put out an article about Stephen Fisher, who was uh, a popular UFC fighter. <clears throat> I believe he was in the lightweight division. He certainly was in the lightweight division. Um, and this article basically details the fact that he stopped fighting in 2013 and he has had um, CTE um, or signs of CTE or brain damage of some description from his career fighting, um, which obviously is, is, you know, it's definitely a big talking point that we need to discuss Um the trouble about it is um, it's fighting. You're, you're not really going to get away from it. That's the problem. Um, and that's kind of what you sign up for. That's that's the um, the industry that you, you move into. You know that's what's going to happen. Um, so I... I it's quite... It's, it's a good article. You should go and read it. If, and it's it's kind of a little bit touching and you feel bad and... But if you take yourself away from it, that's kind of how it goes, unfortunately. You know, you, you kind of make that trade-off for the paycheck and the um, the approval of a, of a drunken audience on a Saturday night to fight in the biggest organisation in the world um, for the money that you agreed to do it for and, you know, be damned of the consequences. Well, now the consequences have come. And obviously, it's very sad. You know, he's got a family, he's got kids and stuff. But what, I don't know what, what you think was going to happen. In any event, um, so 
his career ended in 2013. And, and the reason that this is an interesting one is um, for five years after that, the UFC sent him a check for $5,000 every month. And this is something that they kind of used to do for guys that had been with the organization for quite a long time. So you'll remember that Chuck Liddell, um, Forrest Griffin, Randy Couture, and um, how on earth am I forgetting his name? He got hit by a train. Something really weird happened. Why can't I remember his name? This is dreadful. Um, Matt Hughes. There it is. God, that was annoying. Um, yeah, so those those guys, Chuck Liddell, Matt Hughes, uh, Forrest Griffin, and Randy Couture, they all, when they retired, basically got given kind of like a a cushy check from Dana White every year. They got put on the payroll, you know, chucked 20 grand a month or how, it might even be more than that. I don't know. I think Randy Couture might have been on more and Chuck Liddell was certainly on more. The thing that was funny about it is none of them used to do anything. Forrest Griffin was the only one that got up every day and went to work and worked at the UFC PI. And he's coincidentally the only one out of all of those guys that's still employed by the UFC because he actually did his job. Um, but when... WME IMG took over the UFC in 2018. Was it 2018? Can't even remember now. Uh, when they took them over, they basically cut all those guys' contracts because they wanted to save six million quid. Um, and they did. But part of that, I think it was 2017, because that's when this happened. So uh, it says, obviously, at the start of the article, it says um, on the 13th of January 2017, the UFC's then chief legal officer informed Emily Fisher that the services of her husband, former UFC lightweight Spencer Fisher, would no longer be needed. Um, so they were getting a check for five grand every single month. And then all of a sudden that stopped. Um, and for a family that was relying on that money, uh, that is obviously quite a big deal, and it put them in quite a lot of hardship. Um, they also then found out um, that Spencer Fisher had uh, showing early signs of CTE. So it's it's a it's a it's a really sad story, but. Um, my stance on this is that's a part of the deal. Um, you know, you enter into a sport that you know is dangerous, that you know could cause you problems down the line, that any time you go in there, you could break something, you could get knocked out. You know, harm is coming your way unless you are very, very, very good at what you do. Um, so it's difficult for me to feel too much sympathy when that's the deal you make you know even if you look at you look at his record and this is the thing like he was a bit of a legend uh spencer spencer fisher uh he, he's one of those guys that was in the ufc for a long time i think his first fight in the ufc was um 2005 yeah ufc fight night 2000 ufc fight night 2 2005 and he beat tiago alves which is impressive um he you know he beat a lot of people, beat Matt Wyman, beat Dan Lozon, beat her, uh, lost to Herbie's Franca, uh, lost to Sam Stout, beat Sam Stout, lost to Frankie Edgar. Jeremy Stevens is in there. He beat Cal Uno. You know, he's beat some impressive people. However, then the losses started to come. And he lost to Joe Stevenson by a submission to elbows, which can't have been nice. He lost a uh, decision to Dennis Seaver. 
He lost to Ross Pearson. He got knocked out by Tiago Tavares and he fought Sam Stout for a third time uh, in 2012. So he racked up a lot of losses. And if you look, he's been knocked out. How many times has he been knocked out? One, two, three. So he's been knocked out three times in his career. And anytime you get knocked out, obviously that is going to damage your brain. Um, but I would imagine that his sparring sessions were heavy. You know, back in the day, every session you had was heavy, even if you go back to the old pride days with the shoguns and whatever, and they'd have famous wars where they trained that were like actual fights. And I think a lot of that has largely disappeared from the sport now, and people are training a lot smarter. So I don't think this is going to be a talking point in 10 years' time so much or in 20 years' time, but I think it's quite prevalent now because a lot of the older guys that were in the sport at the beginning are getting older, um, and they are running into running into problems. It was the same with WWE, you know, when they used to hit each other with chairs, and I know that WWE's fake, but getting hit with a steel chair isn't fake. You know, falling off a 20-foot ladder and landing on your head's not fake. Um, and you saw those things that they examined Chris Benoit's brain after he did what he did and that, and they found all sorts of brain damage in there. So I think it's definitely a talking point and it's definitely something that perhaps we need to pay closer attention to, but I do feel that the UFC or the even fighters that are active now have, have already done that. You talk to Max Holloway. He says he doesn't spar. Max Holloway doesn't spar. Carlos Condit did an interview a couple of years ago. He said he doesn't spar anymore. Donald Cerrone says he doesn't spar anymore. So you can train without sparring hard. You can rise to the top without sparring hard. Um, I know a lot of people say they still do. And even Connor said that, you know, he has unsanctioned fights in his, you know, training camps, however much of a, a pinch of salt you want to take with that. But yeah, very, very interesting. Very interesting. But sad for Spencer Fisher, but I don't have a massive amount of sympathy, unfortunately. I think you need to know what you're doing, take responsibility for what you're doing, um, and obviously own uh, the decisions you make. And he had a great career. He was a famous fighter. He traveled the world. He won fights. He fought for money. He fought in front of thousands of people. He got everything he wanted out of it. But he got some things he didn't want as well. USADA. USADA have come out, or USADA and the UFC have come out and uh, made significant rule changes regarding marijuana um, or marijuana use with athletes, should I say, um, in and around fight time. So the way they used to do it is um, you just weren't allowed to take marijuana in any capacity. Uh, if it was found in your system at any point during a drug test, um, there would be a fine, a ban, um, then they kind of lessened it a little bit and said that, you know, you get one strike and this and that. Um, and then they got rid of completely uh, out of competition tests. If they found marijuana, it got ignored um, because they didn't test for that. They just tested for uh, your PEDs and other items on USADA's ban list. Um, so marijuana wasn't a problem up until I think two weeks either side of the fight, I think it was. Um, and I might be wrong, but if I'm wrong, I'm close. So two weeks either side of the fight, they called it in competition. Uh, and if you tested positive for marijuana, that was a problem. And there would be a uh, fine and or a ban. 
usually uh, six months and then second strike would be two years or whatever and, and, and so and so on. So that was always the rule of thumb and it became more and more of a talking point and more and more of an issue because um, people, for example, were taking fights at short notice to help the UFC out. They were then fighting, testing positive from our one afterwards and then getting in trouble for it. So they've had to, they've had to rethink and, and, uh, and rejig how they do things. And USADA are quite good at that, in fairness. When something kind of comes up like this, they do listen and they do change what they're doing eventually. Um, and obviously USADA, the UFC pays USADA to carry out their drug testing program and pays them a lot of money to do it. There is, of course, uh, the athletic commissions that also run their own tests. So what will be interesting to know is if the athletic commission will take USADA's stance and follow them over the uh, over the over the bridge, or whether or not uh, the some of the athletic commissions will still have a problem with marijuana. Um, but it, it's interesting because I just remember there was footage of Nate Diaz in a in an open fight workout before one of his fights, just smoking weed, which. <laughs> Uh, was definitely in competition. But so this is an article from MMA Fighting, and it effectively says um, this. So the updated rules are effective from January the 1st, um, and they will no longer punish athletes who test positive for marijuana, specifically THC uh, 11 nor 9 carboxy. Terror trucker, blah, 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 a word I can't pronounce, um, which is the main psychoactive ingredient in the drug. Previously, athletes were only tested for marijuana in competition uh, around a fight, but there were threshold levels in place and a positive test above a limited resulted in a doping violation. So as I just said, um, they started to tweak it um, and now they've just they've made a full cell change. So now under the new rules, fighters will no longer be punished for testing positive for marijuana unless further evidence demonstrates the substance was taken for performance enhancing purposes. I don't know how you take weed to enhance your performance, if I'm perfectly honest with you. Um, so that's basically their way of saying it's fine to do it. Um, don't worry about it. So Jeff Nowitzki said, uh, it's really, as with everything we do with this program, it's science-based. Especially in the pandemic era, we've had all these issues issues with fighters and taking fights in the last minute and then ending up with positive in-competition marijuana results. Um, and that is the the issue that they've come across. Um, so th this is good. This is a good piece of news and it's a good positive story um, because obviously quite a lot of fighters use marijuana, some for medicinal purposes and some just because they like smoking weed, I guess. Um, the trouble that I've got with it is you'll remember Nick Diaz and everyone remembers Nick Diaz. Um, but back in 2015, the Nevada state athletic commission suspended Nick Diaz for five years and fined him 165 grand following a failed test for marijuana. Like that's mental. When you think of that five years of his career, they tried to take off him because of marijuana use. That's just bonkers when you think of it like that. There was an appeal uh, four months later and the suspension was reduced to 18 months and he was fined 100 grand. 
but still 18 months of his career gone. Um, he then went on and that he had a sentence lifted on the sixth, uh, on in 2016, but he had some other issues. He had some fines outstanding and things like that. So Nick Diaz isn't a saint, but my point is, is, and it's even the same when you think about the USA now, like you can go to one state and you can smoke weed, sell weed, buy weed, do whatever you want with it. You can go just over the border and you'll go to prison for six years. It's, it just doesn't make any sense at all on any level. Um, and I'm not a marijuana advocate. Like I don't, I don't use it or anything like that, but I just don't like how there can be one rule in one place and one rule somewhere else. It doesn't make much sense to me outside of countries. And even that annoys me a little bit, but if you're sitting in America and you're one state, you can do this and the other state you can't, it just doesn't make too much sense to me at all. So um, overall, I think this is quite a positive piece of news, but you've got to spare a thought for your uh, Sean O'Malley's and your Nick Diaz's and people like that, that have been suspended um for in-fight uh in-fight samples that tested positive for weed can we see how many fires there have been suspended for weed let's have a look ufc fighters suspended for weed because off the top of my head i can think of sugar sean o'malley and i can think of obviously nick diaz um Nico Price was suspended in Nevada for marijuana use. Who else have we got now? Alex Morono was suspended for marijuana use in 2017. Kevin Croom was suspended for four and a half months for testing positive for marijuana. Four and a half months isn't that big a deal because you probably only fight three times a year anyway. But he was also fined some money, um, which is a problem. Uh, Jose Flores, who was a contender series. So there's been quite a few, um, and I know I'm missing a bunch, but it was obviously a problem for these fighters or for the UFC or for USADA. I guess it's a problem for all of them because USADA have got to go through the, the rigmarole of finding someone, uh, taking them to a hearing, suspending them, money on tests, money on paperwork, time spent, suspend a fighter the ufc loses a fighter who hasn't gained anything by taking marijuana um for three months six months a year two years five years if you're nick diaz and then these are dropping off the roster all the time the athletic commission have got to have a hearing they've got to sit down they've got to talk about it they've got to write up paperwork They've got to send it off. They've got to write out fines they've got to introduce legislation they've got to do all these different things so it just it didn't serve any of the three parties um, to carry on that rule. So positive that it's been done. Shed a tear for the fighters that obviously got stung by this in the past. Um, but a positive move from USADA and a positive move from the UFC, in my opinion. So this Saturday night, January the 16th, the UFC uh, broadcast live on ABC for the first time in America. ABC is uh, the American broadcast Corporation, I believe, American Broadcast Company, um, is a long-running TV program in the United States, and they used to have a lot of boxing. Um, so from what I can figure out, this is quite a big deal, um, certainly for the UFC to have um, MMA broadcast on ABC for the very first time. 
uh, which has never been done before. Uh, they have, as I said, they used to uh, have all the big boxing fights on ABC. Um, anytime that any big heavyweight fight back in the day was on Muhammad Ali or whatever, it was broadcast on ABC. So for the UFC to be on there or MMA to be on there is quite a big deal, I think, for the UFC. So that's a positive. But uh, January 16th, 2021. So tomorrow night, Saturday, uh, UFC on ABC or UFC Fight Island uh, 7, I believe it is. Yep, UFC Fight Island 7 broadcasts, broadcasts to us live. Um, obviously, as I said, it's in Fight Island. It's the first card of the year. Um, it is in Abu Dhabi. And the other thing to uh, perhaps take a little... Bit of enjoyment from as it is in the Etihad Arena, which is newly built in Dubai, specifically built for big sporting events like this. Um, and I know that the UFC had a deal with Dubai to do a certain amount of fights a year in that arena. Um, something obviously they didn't plan on accelerating so quickly with the whole uh, coronavirus situation. But um, there we have it. So the fight card, as I will uh, reel off to you now, the main event is Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater. Um, very much looking forward to that fight. The, the, the co-main event is Carlos Condit versus Matt Brown. We then have Santiago Ponzinibbio versus Li Jinglang. And then we have Joaquin Buckley versus Alessio Di Chirico. Di Chirico? That's a hard one to say that. I don't even know why. D Chirico. Not even that difficult when you really break it down and look at it. So uh, there is quite a few uh, decent fights on the prelims as well. Phil Hawes is fighting. Uh, Vanessa Mello is fighting. Uh, and Carlos Felipe is also fighting. So there's a few names on there that we recognize. Um, but if we talk about first uh, Joaquin Buckley in the middleweight division... So the thing with Joaquin Buckley, and, and, and this is a, an interesting thing that we'll probably talk about with both of these guys. Um, Buckley obviously went viral earlier on in the year with his spinning back kick knockout of uh, Kassangane. Um, he's another hard word. Why can't people have normal normal names? The commentator's nightmare. So um, prior to that... Uh, Joaquin Buckley was on a, a two-fight win streak in LFA. He then came to the UFC, fought Kevin Holland right off the bat, and got Tico by Kevin Holland. He then since fought Kasangani and uh, did that world-famous viral spinning back kick, uh, and then he knocked out Jordan Wright. So he, he was unlucky, perhaps, to fight Kevin Holland on his very first fight in the UFC. And this was, of course, when Kevin Holland uh, went five uh, victories in 2020. So... It's kind of, it's, he almost drew the short straw, but people didn't know at that point that Kevin Holland was what Kevin Holland has turned out to be. Um, so perhaps, you know, they didn't, it, it was just a bit unlucky that he, he fought Kevin Holland when he did. But so far, he's taken out two, um, two sort of middleweight fighters. I don't want to say, I, I paused myself there because I don't want to say stepping stone. Um, but I guess everyone's a stepping stone to everyone, aren't they? So. Uh, yeah, two impressive victories from Joaquin Buckley. He's obviously got a lot of eyes on him now, um, considering that his last fight, uh, or sorry, second to last fight, was that spinning back kick that went ballistic. And then he knocked out Jordan Wright in 20 seconds uh, at UFC 255. So people are now expecting a lot from Joaquin Buckley. <clears throat> and I guess it's better to be in that position than not be in that position. But 
it's still something that might start playing on his mind that he's now got to deliver for all of these people. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how Joaquin Buckley fares there. He is fighting, as I said, and I struggled to say a minute, a minute ago, Alessio Di Chirico. Di Chirico, Alessio Di Chirico. So Di Chirico has not been as um, lucky or uh, or as successful um, as Buckley has been in the UFC, but he has been in the UFC a little bit longer. So he's had three, six, he's had eight fights in the UFC dating back to 2016. Um, and in that time, he's won three and lost five. And three of those five losses have come in his last three fights. So as far as uh, DiCirico goes, his, his back's against the wall a little bit. Uh, he, again, actually lost to Kevin Holland, um, in 2019, lost a unanimous decision. Uh, he then fought uh, Mahmoud Muradov in 2019 and lost. And he also lost to Zach Cummings uh, in 2020. So he took a year out, came back, and then lost again. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, Buckley's going to win this fight. Uh, he's probably going to stop him in the first or second round. Um, and then DiCirico hasn't really got anywhere to go other than out of the door. Um, so that's my prediction for that fight. Uh, the next fight, we move along uh, and we move to the welterweight division. And this is Santiago Ponzinibbio versus Li Jinglang. Um, Jinglang has won four out of his last five and his, his last fight was a loss to Neil Magny, which in fairness is no... It, it, it's it's not that bad. Um, Neil Magny's quite impressive as far as the welterweight division goes, and he's been around for a long time. So to lose to him is not a massive black mark against your name. Uh, but he'll obviously want to get back to winning ways. But he's fighting Santiago Ponzinibbio. And the thing that's a bit interesting about Santiago Ponzinibbio is he might be the best welterweight in the division. We just don't know. Um, he hasn't fought in two years. He last fought... Uh, at the 17th of November 2018, where he knocked out Neil Magny. You see where I'm going with this. Um, he also has beat names like Mike Perry and Gunnar Nelson and Zach Cummings uh, along the way. The trouble is, is he hasn't fought in two years. So prior to him going away, he put together a seven-fight winning streak against people like Zach Cummings, uh, Court McGee, Gunnar Nelson, Mike Perry and Neil Magny. He then disappeared for two years. So it's kind of... We don't know if he's still as good as he was when he left. And if he is, that's bloody impressive. And what's he been doing all this time? Um, I know he had a staff infection that kept him out. Excuse me. Um, I know he had a staff, a staff infection that kept him out of uh, his fight. that was I think he was supposed to face Robbie Lawler um, in December 2019. But he had to pull out because he had the infection. He was then... Uh, scheduled to face someone else and that fell out and um, he was supposed to fight Salikov um, but then Salikov pulled out because he got COVID so you now they've put in Jing Lang to replace him so it's all been a bit of a mess as far as this fight goes but it's come together um, both guys are ready I think we're going to see the same Ponzinibbio that left I know that two years is quite a long time um, but he was very good when he left. Um, I'm expecting, uh, especially against Jing Lang, who is no mug, but he's not really at the top of the welterweight table. So I am expecting a Ponzinibbio victory. Um, 
I'm going to say by decision just because he's a little bit rusty. So moving on to the co-main event, uh, Carlos Condit fights Matt Brown. And I know I've touched on this before that they are both kind of coming to the end of their time in the UFC, time in the sport. Um, and both are probably sort of eking towards retirement and seeing who's going to get there first. But looking at Matt Brown and his last three, six, nine fights, he's won three, so he's lost six. Uh, however, he has won two out of the last three, um, but one of them was against a old, small, fat Diego Sanchez. So um, <laughs> I won't take too much into that. Ben Saunders' impressive victory, but again, Ben Saunders is on the way down. Uh, Matt Brown was TKO'd uh, back in May by Bazer. Um, so <sighs> Matt Brown's on his way out. Looking at Carlos Condit, it's a similar kind of story. And I love Carlos Condit. Um, but he's 36 now. A little bit old to be in the sport at that age. Um, how old's Matt Brown? Did I look how old Matt Brown is? How old do you reckon? I reckon Matt Brown's 40. Let's have a look. He's 40. Bang on the bang on the beak. He's 40 years old. And he turned 40 six days ago. Happy birthday, Matt Brown. Um, so Carlos Condit, again. He, oh, Jesus Christ. I think I said this last time I looked at his record. He has lost five of his last six fights. Um, that does spat, spawn back all the way to 2016. Um, he's kind of fought sporadically since then, twice in 2016, once in 2017, once in 2018. Sorry, twice in 2018 and once in 2020. So he took a year out after losing five, which makes sense. Um, he's not losing to mugs. You know, he's lost to... Robbie Lawler, Damian Meyer, Neil Magny, Michael Chiesa, and Alex Oliveira. So they're all names in the division. Um, but his last victory came over Court McGee in 2020. So this is kind of a swan song for Carlos Condit as well. Both um, really good competitors, really great guys, great for the sport, have done a lot, but I think... Uh, Time's up, chaps. However, if I've got to pick a winner, which I've got to, I reckon they both knock each other out. No, um, I reckon Carlos Condit wins by decision. I don't think there'll be any knockouts um, in that fight. I also think it will be a bit sad to watch, but I might be wrong. It could be fantastic. Uh, so moving on to the main event. Now, the main event sees uh, Calvin Cater against Max Holloway, as we've already uh, discussed, and you're obviously all fully aware. Um, Calvin Cater has won uh, four out of his last five fights, uh, victories over Chris Fishgold, Ricardo Lamas, Jeremy Stevens, and Dan Eich. Um, he did, however, lose to Zabit Magomed, Magomed Sharapov. Magomed Sharapov, there you go. Almost, almost got that one first time. Um, but Zabit, obviously unbeaten in the UFC, although he hasn't fought in a while and is, I don't know what he's doing. They keep trying to match him up with Yair Rodriguez, but neither of them seem to want to fight the other one. Uh, in any event, so Calvin Cater, this will be a massive, massive victory for him uh, if he can defeat Max Holloway. If we look at the rankings, Calvin sits sixth, uh, and Max Holloway is obviously number one. The trouble that Max Holloway's got is he's fought Volkanovski, the champion, twice. And you know you don't fight him a third time unless you win one of the fights. So he's, he's fought Volkanovski twice. He's lost twice. It's a tough one for Holloway. If I was him, I'd be looking to move up a division. Um, I know it's quite a stretch for him to cut down um, to 145, but, you know, he could move up to uh, 
to, sorry, to 135. I know he could move up to lightweight. I don't see why not. You know, I know it's kind of murderer's row in the lightweight division, but I'd like to see Max Holloway there. In any event, um, so Calvin Cater looking good, but this is kind of a, it's not a make or break for him, but this will kind of draw a line in the sand as to whether or not he is a top talent or he is another one of the guys. And I know that perhaps saying that, considering he's ranked sixth in the best MMA organization in the world might sound like that, but I'm just comparing him with everyone else in that division or every other fighter that doesn't quite make that grade. Um, so yeah, this is a big fight for Calvin Cater and it's a, it's, it's quite an important fight for Max Holloway as well. Um, that said, when we look at Max Holloway, he has fought um, in his last eight fights, they've all been for a belt. You know, he has his, the thing is with Max Holloway, he fought Pettis for the belt, uh, for the interim belt, beat Jose Aldo twice and retained the belt, beat Brian Ortega. And I mean, beat the brakes off Brian Ortega, like beat him bad. Uh, he then fought for the UFC interim lightweight championship against Dustin Poirier and lost. Um, in between those fights, there was issues with weight cutting and, and Khabib and all sorts of other things like that. Um, he then defended the featherweight championship against Frankie Edgar, but Frankie Edgar's old boy. Uh, he then lost the belt to Volkanovski, and he then lost the rematch to Volkanovski, which a lot of people thought he won. Um, the fight was too close to call, but that does make him... Uh, one and three in his last four fights, unfortunately. Um, so it's difficult because Max Holloway is one of the best fighters on the planet. Um, he's just lost a couple of times and he's lost to um, the champion twice. So it is really a question of where does he go from here? Um, I think he beats Calvin Cater, but then he's still not going to get a title shot. So after he fights Calvin Cater, he's going to have to ask himself, what do I do? You know, you can look at the rankings. It's Holloway, Ortega, Zabit, Rodriguez, the Korean zombie, and then Calvin Cater. So the only other things for Max Holloway to get him back to a title shot is he'll have to beat Calvin, who's ranked sixth. He'll have to beat Zabit and or Yair Rodriguez and possibly the Korean zombie as well. So... If he really wants to get back to that specific 145-pound belt, he's going to have to beat everyone in his way. And I don't know if it's worth him doing that. That's the thing. But the other thing that's a little bit interesting about that division is it's kind of a little bit stuck because Holloway can't get another title shot. If they do, it will be very, very interesting. It will be something that they haven't really done before. You don't lose twice and get another title shot, no matter how close it was. Um but Brian Ortega, when's Brian Ortega next fighting? Should we have a look? Brian Ortega, has he got a fight? No, he beat the Korean Zombie in October, but there's nothing scheduled in for Brian Ortega yet. Zabit and Yair both don't have a fight scheduled in yet. So that division is a kind of a, a bit of a standstill at the moment, and it's it's all Max Holloway's fault. But if you have to... Uh, if my back's against the wall and I've got to pick a winner, I pick Max Holloway by stoppage. 
perhaps in the second round, and that's no uh, disrespect to Calvin, but I think that's the way it's going to go. Um, obviously, I will come back to you with the results, and we'll see how right or wrong I was, but that's how I see it going down. So, and this is just a quick one, but Khabib is currently meeting Dana in Abu Dhabi to discuss whether or not he's going to fight again. And there's a, there's a few things that are going around my brain on this topic. One, why can't they have this discussion over the phone? As Dana said the other day, it's going to be a yes or a no. We're going to sit there. It's going to be a yes or a no. Um, two, they just put it up on, on Instagram, which was footage of Dana and Khabib walking into a room and then shutting the door, which is just so dramatic, you know. Um, and three, then Khabib put up a, put up another one of him sitting there in a chair and then flipping the camera around to Dana. So with all of this, Khabib wouldn't do all of this if he wasn't going to fight again. He wouldn't just do all of that and then turn around and go, oh, no, no, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. Um, that would be weird. So here's my take on what's going to happen. Khabib is in Abu Dhabi now, right? Connor fights in a week. I don't know if Khabib stays there or if he doesn't. I'd imagine he probably won't, but here's my take on what's going to happen. Khabib's going to fight again. Connor's going to beat Poirier, or my God, the UFC's hoping Connor's going to beat Poirier. I know I am, but the UFC is badly. Um, and then we're going to get Connor versus Khabib too, and it's as simple as that. Khabib will fight Connor for the belt one more time, 30-0, and then he's done. But I don't think he'll be done. I think he'll then go on and do some stupid welterweight fight or something like that. But as far as I'm concerned, Khabib is not done fighting. He wouldn't go through all of this. He wouldn't fly to Dubai. He wouldn't post it on his Instagram. He wouldn't do all of those things if he wasn't, if he was just going to retire. He's going to turn around and go, Dana, thanks a lot, mate. Appreciate it. Just flying all the way out here, but I, I, I'm not going to fight anymore. He's not going to do that. <laughs> Okay, so that was episode 16. A um, little bit about USADA, a little bit about UFC on ABC, a little bit about Khabib, um, and a little bit about a sad Spencer Fisher. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, we will be back reviewing the Holloway fight. We've also got Chiesa versus Magny in the middle of the week, and then obviously next week we've got uh, UFC 257, McGregor versus Poirier. So a really, really busy uh, week of fights. I will be with you every step of the way. So don't you worry about that. Um, and until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>